and it's just coming up to four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Hunt on Joan Bartler here until six this night. Today, first of up, the work of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. I'll be speaking with the President, Dr Margaret Beavis. Iraqi veteran against the war visits Afghanistan and that's Aaron Hughes. 40 years of 3CR broadcasting. Nancy Atkin will be looking back at the early days. Fiji and its place in the world with journalist and broadcaster Nick McClellan. And Kathy Kelly and her work in Afghanistan with Voices for Creative Nonviolence. And he'll be back next week. That's Kevin. Today, the first of a monthly segment with the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And my guest is Dr Margaret Beavis, a Melbourne GP, who is the current president of MAPWA. Beginning, Margaret, with the genesis of MAPWA, or MAPW. MAPWA started uh, almost 40 years ago by a group of doctors who were really concerned about the Cold War, which was pretty active at that stage, and in particular uh, concerned about nuclear weapons because the reality was that it was quite possible that they could be used and they wanted to do something about that. So they got together as a group of doctors. It was initially American and Russian doctors who got together. And so they were trying to put pressure on their governments to say, look, these weapons are not acceptable, that the damage they do is indiscriminate and appalling and that there's no chance of any health response basically if all the doctors and hospitals are wiped out as well. So trying to sort of work for peace there. And in fact, they formed a group that was called the, it's a horrible acronym, IPPNW, but the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear Weapons, Nuclear Warfare. And that organisation had worked so hard and so effectively that in 1985 they got the Nobel Peace Prize for what they had done towards making the world a, a more peaceful place and a safer place. MAPW is the Australian branch of IPPNW. There are all these acronyms, are horrible, but MAPWA is the Australian branch of a worldwide organisation. We are national and we have branches in every state and territory, but we are part of a much older and wider organisation. Now here's another acronym, ICANN. What's your connection with them? Oh, we're very, very proud of ICANN. We feel we, ICANN is the international campaign for the abolition of nuclear weapons, which... I mean, MAPWA is health professional-based, ICANN is for everybody, and ICANN focuses solely on really developing a ban treaty for nuclear weapons. ICANN started in Melbourne. I wasn't involved, but other doctors involved before me set up ICANN in 2007. It was launched at the Victorian State Parliament. It now has over 400 partner organisations around the world and has been really instrumental in, in last year being a very exciting year for making some positive steps towards a ban. When and why did you become involved? I'd been a member for some time, involved also with another group called Doctors for the Environment who do terrific things. I think there are a number of threats in our future. Certainly climate change is a big one, but nuclear weapons and warfare are also major threats to both people and the climate. And so I thought that that was an area where you could make a difference. And so I got involved once my kids had left school and I had a little more time. I mean, I worked part-time and I was raising kids. And then once the kids had left school, I thought, well, this would be a really good thing to get involved in. It would be interesting and potential to make change. And what has been your role? 
I've been a member and then I've been on the Victorian Committee and now I'm National President. Probably means I spend a day a week or sometimes two days a week working on issues to do with MAPWA. There's a Victorian Committee that I'm also involved with. I liaise with doctors in other states and also with other groups, other organisations, and we provide information, we provide resources, we provide speakers, do a number of things such as write to the government, to prove written to Julie Bishop a couple of times once we wrote about um, opposing the escalation. Australia's increasing its bombing in Syria. We felt that was unhelpful and there were much better ways that we could spend the money in terms of providing assistance for people who were in distress in that area rather than just increasing the bombing, which again, is fairly indiscriminate killing. Um, we wrote to about an independent investigation when the Medicine of Frontier, the hospital in Afghanistan in Kunduz, was bombed. We wrote to her, put in submissions for various, the defence white paper for when they wanted to export uranium to India. There was big concerns because India is not a signatory to the non-proliferation treaty and there is, it's highly likely that Australian uranium will, in fact, enable the limited supplies of Indian uranium to go into their nuclear weapons program and that is exactly what we do not want to happen. We do not want boosting the, any of the nuclear weapons programs and to have Australian uranium part of that is really wrong. And in fact, interestingly, the joint committee that looked into this said that exporting uranium to India was, was a proliferation risk and that there, a whole lot of conditions should be put on before any uranium went to India but no, the exports went ahead without any of those conditions. So the government went against its own committee's advice. So we work on a number of issues like that. We're involved with the South Australian Royal Commission into the Nuclear Industry. When they put out the terms of reference, we put in a submission that meant that they took health as a factor. Previous to that, they had ignored health as an issue in the nuclear fuel cycle, and it's a very significant issue. And then we also put in a formal submission to that Royal Commission about the problems of the nuclear fuel chain. So there's, there's lots and lots to, <laughs> lots to work on. 2015 was predicted to be a, a big year for the focus on peace, not war. What did you do regarding the 100th anniversary of the destruction of Gallipoli? We put out a number of articles and YouTube clips. Uh, our Canberra branch particularly coordinated that. There's this series of there's 12 articles and YouTube clips titled The War to End All Wars honouring the dead and learning the lessons, which basically was, it was some very learned academics, historians and authorities in the area speaking on this area. We, we had developed some educational materials, and if there are any teachers out there listening for years 9 and 10, we've put, out, put together some, a program written by the Victorian Teachers Association on the enduring effects of war. So basically, what are the lasting effects on society from going to war? And we prepared those a couple of years ago because we knew that last year, being the 100th centenary of the Gallipoli landings, there was going to be a huge sort of commemoration, sort of normalising war. So, so we wanted to have something that went into the curriculum that people would understand that war is not all about glory and death. It's about, you know, damage to the society that lasts for generations, death for an awful lot of people. So, and the other thing we did with the centenary of Anzac is around Australia on Anzac Eve, we had a number of different events. Here in Melbourne, we had a, a really successful event at Deacon Edge, where we had a number of speakers and a couple of choirs, and that was a very successful evening. Just pointing out that you know peace is something that you can work on. You can make peace just as you can make war. Yeah, no, we had a number of excellent speakers there. Uh, and we were very happy with how that went. I certainly think over the last decade, the sort of festive feeling that's 
come with Anzac, whereas in my childhood, when we went to Anzac, if we went to an Anzac parade, it was a very sombre recognition of the, the sort of how sad it had been for all these people who'd come back from war, whereas now it's sort of become a, a national glue, where it's, you know, like barracking at the footy, except this is a footy team that everybody can barrack for. And I think that's dangerous, because if you start normalising war and making it into something that is really acceptable, I mean, it is a problem because you get young people who think going to war is a good idea. And I do think that normalising war is a factor in radicalisation because some particularly younger males who are sort of 18 to 20 and feel they're invincible get caught up in the in the glory of war and not in the, the reality of war. Can you talk a bit more about the other anniversary last year, which was the 70th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Yes. Again, we held uh, vigils in various states here in Melbourne, we held a village vigil, on the, which we do every year, on the steps of St Paul's Cathedral, just marking, bearing witness to what happened. Also this year we had a, a movie screening of a film called Hiroshima, which was a fascinating film in that it was made about six years, it was made in Hiroshima about six years after the bomb dropped, and the people that paid for it were in fact the teachers of Japan. They all got together and contributed to get this movie made and it was made using people who'd gone through Hiroshima and it was a very strong quite confronting depiction of what happens when a bomb is dropped and it told it beautifully through the story of some children who are now in class having lived through the events and it was a, it was a beautiful film but really pretty confronting and and quite shocking in some ways just to see the level of destruction and and to have been made in such a recent, so close to the actual event. It, the, the reason that we picked it up now is because it's just been translated into English. If, you, if anyone gets a chance to see the movie Hiroshima, um, I would strongly recommend it or download it. And in fact, if you do download it and look at it and then you decide you want to do something about it, I'd strongly recommend you go to ICANN website because they are working really actively on getting these weapons banned and they're, they're always looking for support. They have a benefactor program, which is sort of a, a giving program. And their, their website is www.ican.org.au. Supporting the work of ICANN in their nuclear weapons abolition is a really important thing. Toward the end of last year, in November, you put out a paper called Change What We Can Change. I think that's yep. pretty important, isn't it? Not yes. to overemphasise too much, but to give people a, a perspective on what they can do. Yes, I think any change is incremental. I think any change is small, but if lots of people work on it, you can make bigger changes. Yes, I think there's many things in Australia we can do. You can write to your politicians and ask them for... In Australia, for us to change how we go to war, in Australia it's actually still a captain's pick. It's a hangover from when we had kings. The Prime Minister can decide that we go to war, take it to Cabinet, and then that's it, it's all over. Whereas in America and England, they have to have a full debate with both houses, either both houses of Parliament or both houses of Congress, and then pass a resolution to go to war. And I think we owe it as a duty of care to our servicemen as well as a sort of duty of care to the whole society, that you don't just go to war because one person feels like it. I think that's really wrong and open to potentially political abuse, that sometimes it's convenient to go to war to distract from other things. And, of course, when you're talking of war, one of the results is asylum seekers. 
Well, yes. Australia's approach to asylum seekers is, is appalling and to have people mouldering in Nauru and Christmas Island and Manus, particularly children, in order to stop, stop the boats, so to speak, is really a very shameful thing and I think we can also lobby for more humane treatment of asylum seekers, closure of those camps. They're not detained, they're imprisoned and they're imprisoned indefinitely without any having committed any crime. They've applied for asylum which is entirely legal and Australia is a signatory to the Refugee Convention and should honour it. Australia is the one doing the wrong thing, it's not honouring its signed convention. Now you're saying that MAPW is a group of health professionals but it's also open to other than health professionals. Oh yes, we're very, very welcoming of anyone to join us who's interested in peace issues and wants to work with us to do that. We definitely work, definitely we have lots of members who are not health professionals. The reason MAPWA tries to take a health approach to war to try and counter the political approach to war because the politics often forgets that these are real people that are being killed. You know, the soldiers are sending over there high percentages and will come back with post-traumatic stress disorder or an injury that, that may impact on them for the rest of their lives and certainly on the civilian populations that they go to invade, such as in Iraq. German branch of IPPNW put out a report last year where they did a very detailed examination of how many civilians died in Iraq and it actually looks like it was around a million. The range is between about 700,000 and 1.7 million, but a million dead civilians for a war that was effectively a war of choice is pretty shocking and as well as a million dead civilians there's millions more who are permanently injured and millions more who fled and became refugees so reflecting on the invasion of Iraq by the US and by us and by some other nations it's worth looking back at that so that we can try and learn from it. If people would like to get in touch with the organisation? We have our website which is www.mapw.org.au or you can email our executive officer on eo at mapw.org.au or you can telephone us on 902319581958. Um, I'll just run through those again. So it's eo at mapw .org.au. The phone number is 902319581958 and our website is www.mapw, Medical Association for Prevention of War, .org.au. And just to remind listeners that this will be a, a monthly segment with either yourself or one other member of MAPW. Yeah, that's fantastic. We're very much appreciative of that and thank you very much, Jan, for having us on. And that indeed was Dr Margaret Beavis, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And there's an awful lot of information on their webpage, www.mapw.org.au. One of those who participated in a recent six-week delegation to Kabul, Afghanistan, with Voices for Creative Nonviolence, was Arin Hughes, a member of the Iraqi Veterans Against the War. He took with him cups he created, displaying flowers native to the Afghan homeland and bearing the names of prisoners in the Guantanamo concentration camp who were from Afghanistan. 
His other role was to work with street kids, teaching relief printing with potatoes and linoleum. This interest in Afghanistan stems from his 15 months in Kuwait and Iraq in 2003-04 as a member of the US military. We began the interview with Aaron speaking about his induction into the military. I served in the Illinois Army National Guard from 2000 to 2006 for six years and I was deployed to Kuwait, Iraq for 15 months from 2003 through 2004. Before I joined the military, I was you know, an 18-year-old getting out of high school. I uh, very much wanted to get out of my mother's house. I was trying to figure out how to do that. I wanted to serve my country. You know, I was a teenager. I was 18, and uh, my recruiter, Sergeant Love, came to my mother's house and picked me up in a red Camaro, took me to Burger King, and we talked about sandbagging the Mississippi River. This is all in 2000, before September 11th, before the global war on terror, during the Be All You Can Be Army. You know, my grandfather had served in World War II, and I had always looked up to his service, and, you know, I thought, well, this is one way I can serve my country and give back. You know, it looks really good with uh, Sergeant Love picking me up in a Camaro and taking me to Burger King and talking about doing all this very righteous stuff, you know, saving people's homes and sandbagging the Mississippi River. And what was the reality of life in Kuwait and Iraq? Well, I deployed at the very, very beginning of 2003. I didn't get boots on ground in Kuwait until April of 2003, uh, and my first mission into Iraq was May of 2003, which was just after President Bush declared mission complete uh, from an aircraft carrier. You know, I was motivated. I was very excited about providing humanitarian relief and getting rid of a terrible dictator, and, uh, you know, I thought I was going to, since the mission was over, I thought we were going to, you know, fix some bridges and pass out some food, and I was going to go home a hero. Well, at least that was my thinking in, uh, in May of 2003. I was a truck driver, so my mission was to haul supplies from Kuwait to different forward operating bases throughout Iraq. My first mission, uh, I remember crossing the border and uh, getting into Iraq, and as soon as I crossed the border, I see these, you know, little kids that are not three feet tall and they're willing to jump on a semi-truck to get food or water. And I thought, oh, whoa, you know, this is great. These are the kids who are here to help. But those kids were still there six months later and they were still on the road nine months later and 12 months later and 13 and 14 and 15 months later. You know, those kids were still there on the side of the road willing to jump on a semi-truck to get food and water and my last convoy out of, out of uh, Iraq, my squad leader, Sergeant Holland, he, uh, he just cried for three hours on that drive south, and he just kept saying, what have we been doing? What have we been doing? You know, really, that was a question I was asking myself a lot during my deployment is, what have we been doing? You know, when I thought we were over there to help these kids, to provide humanitarian relief, and not once 
did we ever help any Iraqis in any way. And uh, we were hauling supplies for contractors, generators, uh, air conditioners, workout equipment for uh, different operating bases throughout Iraq. And, you know, we were, you know, running these missions just to build up more and more bases in Iraq and really had nothing to do anything at all with the Iraqi people. There's a whole series of experiences over 15 months. The beginning of kit waving and being excited that we were there to a year later throwing rocks and to small arms fire to RPGs to IEDs. Um, it's kind of the arc of my deployment. I feel like it's, um, it's pretty clear that a lot of Iraqis thought, like I did, that we were there to help originally and to liberate. Unfortunately, that's not what the U.S. military is designed to do, and that wasn't what the policies that we were uh, serving under, and that's not our foreign policy. And it was just unfortunate that was already in that system before I realized it. Was there anything positive for you during that 15 months? What was positive was the desert flowers, the birds that know no barbed wire, sunsets, these moments of humanity that transcend the dehumanization and violence that uh, was part of supporting and conducting. Yeah, there, there are these moments, you know, even in the most desperate and ugliest situations, if you still have some hope in your heart, you can find some sense of humanity and some sense of beauty. How do you believe your mother or other family members would have found you when you came home after that 15 months? Did they comment on how you changed? Yes, they all commented in different ways. What did you tell them? What did I tell them when I first got home? Yeah, how did you relate your experiences to them? You know, I didn't really know how to relate my experiences to them. What I did was I wrote a letter. I wrote a letter to everybody in my family and every person that had sent me a letter while I was deployed about my experience. You know, it didn't go into any details about any of the specific moments or experiences of my deployment, but my feeling that what we were doing was wrong and that our strategy of using violence and dehumanization to build a democracy just doesn't work, and it wasn't going to work. I sent that to all my family members, and that's not really what... I think signified to them that I was, had changed. I think this was just like, oh, he these things now. But that doesn't, just because someone changes their mind doesn't mean they've changed as a person. And I had changed fundamentally as a person. And my father's reaction to this was by, first, we got in extreme arguments. My parents are split up. My mom raised me and for most of my teenage years, but when I got home, I specifically got actually on a leave. I got a week leave. I went to see my, spent some time with my father, and uh, we got an extreme argument. He didn't really know how to process my frustration and feelings about the war. 
you know, he thought we were doing the right thing in Iraq, and I was trying to explain to him in the most rational sense that I could that we were killing people. That's not uh, a process in which you're uh, building up democracy or human rights, and uh, that we're oppressing people and basically building out these massive military installations while people are starving. You know, that was what I was seeing. You know, SUVs and air conditioners and what the Iraqi people were getting were rifles in their faces and, you know, a lot of abusive behavior. You know, that was really hard for him to understand. When I finally did return from my actual deployment and I just on leave, he was the first person that said, hey, I think you have post-traumatic stress disorder. I think you need help. So that was his response, thinking that I needed to get some mental and psychological support, which do deal with those issues. And um, But I don't necessarily think that was the totality of our uh, tension or conflict that we were dealing with. So in this regard to my mother, she just says that came home a different person. That's just all she says. And I think she says that with a sense of loss. At least that's the way I've heard her say it to other people, and it's, you know, it's a strange thing to hear, but that's what she says. What did you do to cope once you got home, having all those mixed feelings with families treating you differently, maybe friends? How did you cope? What did you do? What did you turn to? I had already made a decision when I was deployed. Uh, in the midst of my deployment, they kind of had lost faith, not only in my military orders, not only in the ideals of American exceptionalism, not only in the ideals of my upbringing, my religion, all these kind of things that I had carried deeply in me, my morals kind of collapsed in contradictions. The one thing that I felt I could hang on to was this idea of that creativity can counter destruction. And I didn't want to be a part of anything destructive anymore. I wanted to be a part of something creative on that really fundamental level. To me, the only thing I knew and that I could think of was art. Art was a creative force. And I knew artists had produced work in the midst of war, in the midst of violence. And I knew that they had shown humanity despite the brutality that we can inflict on each other. And I know that they had showed beauty despite the brutality we can inflict on each other. And so um, I decided to become an artist. When I got home, that was, you know, what I began to switch gears towards beginning to learn and research and study, you know, the great artworks, become a artist, a fine artist. And I went back to art school and studied painting. So that's how I began to transition. I got home in 2004. Uh, I was the first Iraq veteran to return to the University of Illinois, a class of 30,000 students the only Iraq veteran. For the first two years of my being at home, there was a lot of isolation and a lot of anger, confusion, 
I was uh, really struggling with the contradictions of everyday America and the fact that we were conducting a war and I had friends that were, you know, could die and were killing people. You know, at that same time, you know, people are going to bars and, you know, going to football games. That was a very stark contradiction to try and have to negotiate. And I uh, took that into my art and I really just tried to make artwork about all of my experience and about the humanity and some of the beauty that existed underneath and despite all of the trauma and destruction. Did you find support at the university? Your tutors, your lecturers? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it was really awkward, (laughs) I think, for everyone. I think any of them necessarily knew how to handle or communicate or what it meant. You know, this was in the United States. Today, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder is a common thing that people talk about. But in 2004, nobody was talking about PTSD. I didn't even hear of PTSD until my dad talked about it. It really wasn't until 2005. You know, the first time I heard anybody else really talk about it was 2006. The idea that, like, what does it mean that this person came back from combat? You know, the most common question was, oh, well, what was that like in classes? I don't necessarily think that that's an easy question to answer. I don't know what was 15 months of my life like. What was the most profound experience I've had in my life like? It's hard to sum up in a two-word answer, two-sentence answer. But I had some teachers that, uh, you know, shared specific artworks with me, specific artists with me, helped me find other artists that uh, were veterans and, uh, you know, I started studying the Ada artists who were overwhelmingly World War One veterans. I started studying Otto Dix. I started studying about the Spanish Civil War and how so many surrealist artists had engaged or had survived in some way the Spanish Civil War. And I was realizing the whole history of how art is wrapped up in uh, modern warfare and the history of warfare from Goya all the way up to uh, the current situation. So to me, it was just, it was about finding those relationships and realizing like, oh, there's this whole history that I can build a practice off of, build a research and artistic practice off of. So that was your therapy? Sure, you can call it that if you want. I wouldn't call it that. What would you call it? I do think that art is healing. I think art is healing for everyone. I think creative practices is healing for everyone. But I'm weary to call it therapy because therapy tends to depoliticize people's political voice. Uh, when you, it's turned into a, an issue of a mental health, uh, at times it's often hard to see the politics. This is not just a... Uh, you know, a psychological situation. This is also a political and a social situation. I hope my artwork deals on all of those levels.
Did you also talk to a lot of people about your experiences through your art or did you let your art do the talking for you? Uh, it's changed. You know, it's changed at different times. In different, you know, my first few years, you know, I didn't really make anything about the Iraq War until 2006 uh, for almost two years. Uh, well, 2005, I guess I started to make a little bit of work about the war. But it took me a long time to just even start working on it, thinking about it. I definitely, you know, began to work on it artistically and find a voice artistically and through my visual work before I started to say anything. You know, one was because I was a truck driver. I was a sergeant in the Illinois Army National Guard. I was a nobody in this war. I thought at the at that time, like, who was I to say anything about anything? You know, I was not some special forces soldier. I wasn't some colonel or general. I was just some nobody that drove trucks. And, uh, you know, I saw what I saw and I did what I did. It took me a long time to realize, like, actually, you know what? It's those voices of all these people that we don't hear from that actually people need to hear from that actually had a real story of what was happening in Iraq. And need to share it because we were just hearing a bunch of spin from all the officers and the generals and the media pundits. It was just a bunch of spin. No one was really telling about their experiences and what they were really seeing on the ground. I did begin to do a lot of speak outs and other work when I got active with Iraq veterans against the war. And that started in two, at the end of 2006. And that was after I had started to make a lot of work about it. And in fact, it was through art veteran against the war member came to an art show that I helped, helped organize about war and on war. He asked me, he's like, you have all these ideas, you're doing all this stuff, why aren't you a member of Iraq Veterans Against the War? And I didn't really have a good answer for him. So I started doing research about the organization and I got involved and then I started participating in speak outs and helping to organize other people's speak outs and eventually helped organize the Winter Soldier investigation in 2008 and uh, became, you know, actively involved in the organization for the last almost 10 years. And that's Aaron Hughes, a member of Iraqi Veterans Against the War, who spent 15 months in Kuwait and Iraq during 2003-2004. And that's part one of a two-part interview. The next part will be next week. You are listening to Melbourne's community radio station. The time is 4.34. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has a specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377. 2016 will be a big year for 3CR. 40 years of broadcasting. Just some of the events. If People Powered Radio 
an exhibition coming up in March, April, Radical Radio Book Launch in May, a station open day in October, and also in October, November, 40 days of Radical Radio broadcasts. In coming months, I'll be speaking with some of those who were there in the early days of 3CR. And today my guest is Nancy Atkin, who is one of those working to put together the Radical Radio book. I asked Nancy what her introduction to 3CR was. I was working at the Old Brunswick Technical School, and one day in the staff room, a friend of mine was talking about doing a program on a community radio station, and I can remember being astonished at the idea of community radio and and wondering how ordinary people could kind of do a program when you weren't trained to speaking the posh voice as people on the ABC did at that time. Anyway, so I got interested in it, I listened to it, and I had a bit of spare time because I was working part-time and I was living just up in Clifton Hill, so when 3CR moved to Collingwood, I went down to see if I could lend a hand. And what was there? What was the building? It was a kind of pokey little one-storey warehouse building in a small side street in Collingwood, and of crowd and probably a little bit dark and full of nooks and crannies and studios and and lots of people. Well, I just said, kind of, give me a job. So I answered the phone for a while and one of the, I think, strong points about 3CR in the early days was the kind of idea that you didn't go in there to be a radio star. You, were, you know, you had to go and do some ordinary kind of jobs before you were allowed to go on air. But it hadn't occurred to me anyway that I'd go on air or at all I just went down to to help and so I started off answering the phone but then I was asked if I'd help on a a morning show also at that stage there weren't any phones through to the studio so we didn't have talk back and so on this morning show the person who was on the phone would run down the corridor and come in and pass you questions or comments from the listeners that they wanted you to discuss with your guests. So you became quite dependent on the, the, the spelling skills of the phone operator, which sometimes produced some funny results. It was uh, talk back at, at uh, second hand. And what were the studios like in those days? Two smallish studios. Uh, the on-air studio was, uh, had turntables and open reel recorders and a, a panel probably pretty much working like panels today work but with fewer appliances attached to them, a cassette player as well. You got involved with the running of the station fairly early, didn't you? Yeah, there was a lot of unhappiness with the, the uh, gang uh, that were running the, ma- the management committee at that stage and there were a lot of programs on air that were embarrassingly boring and there were a few, just a few, but enough to to give people concern, and uh, probably more importantly, programs on it just ran a very dogmatic and and once again boring narrow political line, and people were really worried about the f- future of the station, and it wasn't sort of welcoming the whole community. It was becoming sort of very narrow and in- inwardly focused in a political sense. So there was a bit of a sort of groundswell among the day-to-day station workers and a lot of the program makers and people started standing for election for various positions so I was persuaded to stand as the listener sponsor representative which turned out to be a sort of more lively kind of election process than I'd imagined it would be. People started signing up listener sponsors and we ended up 
I mean, a few months down the track, we would have these massive meetings of business sponsors and massive people, masses of people enrolling to vote. You'd have some, eventually four or six hundred people at, at meetings and a bit of shouting and yelling. I think generally rather a, a, a rather livelier atmosphere than probably happens at 3CR meetings today. And what was the outcome of all that? Over a period of a couple of years, the outcome was was a gradual sort of change in the management of, of the station and a sort of, I think, a more open and community-friendly 3CR. And a move to leave that old warehouse in Cromwell Street and actually be independent and have yes, a station well, of your own? Yes, so there was actually a very lucky set of circumstances. There was a community or a series of community groups that owned what's now the 3CR building in, three, in Smith Street, which is basically two, I think, Victorian-era shops side, side to side. They owned that building that bought it when, land, when property was extremely cheap in Fitzroy by current-day standards. Their groups, the time had sort of come when their groups were winding down. One was, was used by a printing press. Printing had been surpassed by other technologies, I think, and similarly with the other groups who were working out of there. So I think they actually approached 3CR and said, would we be interested in taking over the building, which involved, I guess, uh, the simplest way to explain it is that we paid for the building and we took over, we had a takeover of the structure, the company structure that owned the building. That was done and we also raised money to renovate the building and build studios in the, in the back part of the building. So that was a lot of work. I mean, raising the money was a lot of work and doing the building was even more work. There was, there were some paid workers who worked on the building and there was a huge amount of voluntary labour which everyone shared in. And of course a lot of the materials were second-hand. Yes, yes. So there were second-hand materials and second-hand equipment and, uh, and lots of enthusiasm and lots of weekend afternoons cleaning bricks and helping the builders. Do you remember how long it took all this work? Because renovating old houses is not easy and, and the studios were actually built from scratch in the back. Yes, yes. No, look, sorry, you'd have to kind of look it up. The building process, I guess, would have been over a year or so. Another thing that we had to do was, of course, have the sort of political argument about whether 3CR should own property, whether we should spend that money, whether we should put the effort into raising that money. And I think there was, at that stage, some people would rather have a kind of a small radio station, a small community where they could be big fish in a little pond and obviously moving into a new station with lots more room opened up the possibility of even more people getting involved. So there was an argument on that level as well. Were we biting off more than we could chew? Was it beyond our capacity? So all those things had to be gone through before the actual building started. You're in the new building. What was it like? Well, I think it was terrific. I mean, just having a meeting room where you could do training, having new studios that were so much better than the the old studios. We had the on-air studio and a studio next to it that could operate as a unit, all those sorts of things, and having Studio 3, of course, a bigger recording studio with much better equipment. Yeah, it was, was luxury. And did you manage to get a lot more new groups to come in, and particularly people from non-English-speaking backgrounds, or was that already happening in the old building? 
I think that was already happening to some extent in the old building. And once again, there was a political argument involved in that in the sort of late 70s to early 80s, which people might find hard to believe, but there was an argument that 3CR shouldn't be encouraging programming in, in languages other than English. And for a while, it was actually a policy saying that anything that was in a community language had to be translated in the same program into English, and it had to be half half the time in the program had to be in English, which was basically was silly and didn't work because English speakers were unlikely to want to listen to a program that was half in a language they didn't understand. It took away half the program time virtually from those programmers. So once again, that was an issue that went to, I think, a community radio federation meeting and was voted on with a lot of arguing. And after that, uh, after that policy changed, I think a lot more groups came in. And 3CR, of course, also realised that of all the programming groups, often those groups programming in their own languages is the ones who really value the station and get behind it both financially and in terms of and in ways of all sorts of support. So that's really been an important part of 3CR, I think, ever, ever since, and particularly welcoming new groups or welcoming groups that have a, a particular political viewpoint that they're not able to put forward so um, strongly on SBS or on other public radio stations. And, of course, even today, the many of the groups are people coming from conflict zones in the world, people who have been had a really hard time and they find 3CRs are such a welcoming place. Yes, and working on the book project which is, I've been working on, which has been recording the 41st years of 3CR, one of the fantastic things about that is seeing the diversity of the groups that have gone through and those different needs. For example, in the 1970s and 80s, the Chilean groups who broadcast in Spanish and one of the people on our book working group was brought up listening to 3CR as a child and was able to tell us how her family tuned in every week to listen in their own language to hear news from their country and how the important role for those groups. Whereas at the other end of the 40 years, we've got the West Papuans, who now, of course, can be heard with the internet. Their program can be heard all, all around the world by the West, pa- uh, West Papuan diaspora getting information once again from 3CR. And of course with those groups coming from troubled areas and often from the left, you have the the right groups here in Australia who are not very happy sometimes about the way that we do broadcast and the, the airtime we give to people with a different point of view to themselves and that's surfaced often with the licence renewals for 3CR with um, people writing submissions to tell the government that don't renew the licence. Yes, and even worse than that, in the late 70s there was a special inquiry called into, into 3CR an attempt to remove 3CR's licence on the basis that the pro-Palestinian programmes were alleged to be, to be anti-Semitic. That conflict ended up being resolved. 3CR actually strengthened its anti-racist principles it always had. But, you know, as you say, later on, other groups were in the gun, so to speak, and there's been libel actions launched against the station and all sorts of attempts to shut people up. Particularly the trade union movement, because we have the, we've always had the, the left of the trade union movement here. 
particularly during the time when the Labor Party was trying to deregister the BLF. That was a time when the, the Labor government tried to shut down the station as well. And could you comment on the trade union movement? When the station began, once again, that was one, uh, one of the exciting aspects. And the trade unions at the time were very actively involved in, in programming. There was a group of waterside workers who came in early one morning and did a program called Ship Siren. They were also very supportive in regard to the sort of practical aspects of the station and building project and the various other things that went on around the station outside their programming time. Builders Labourers, right from the start, had their Sunday morning program, which was live to air for, for many years and you know, had a huge, huge listenership and really important for the union and also listened to widely by the employers in the industry to see what was going on. Then on weekday mornings, a group of left unions combined to produce a stick-together show and fairly quickly the people who were, who were coming in before work to do it decided to raise money among, I think, a dozen unions to pay producers to produce that program, which was a terrific thing and had some, a series of great producers over a long period producing a very high-quality daily current affairs show. And later on, the funding of that, I think, from the unions dried up, at least to some extent, and it was taken on by the the community radio community and, and continues to this day and is now is now broadcast around the country. So that was an important initiative. But I think the, in the early days of the station, it was more a, a matter of people actually coming in and taking up the chance to broadcast and have their say and say what they thought and talk about stuff that wasn't talked about elsewhere. Let's go back to your career as a radio person, Nancy. It began, as you said, really early. Let's talk about that. What was your first introduction to On Air on 3CR? Well, I did a a panel course. I've still got the piece of paper. (laughs) I think nowadays the training is much more extensive, but I I just did a kind of one or two hours with a a bloke who was kind of a bit of a, a wizard panel operating who presented rock and roll programs and probably someone like that today would be a DJ, DJ at kind of dance venues or something. But anyway, so I learned, you know, how to turn things on and off and this is skill of how to kind of start a record quickly without it going when it started playing. Then it was just a matter of doing it. Were there particular areas you liked to cover? Because you were doing a breakfast program fairly no, early, not um, you? I did, the first thing I did was a morning program with... Um, which I did with Liz Caffin. Really, we just sort of followed stuff that we were kind of interested in, which I suppose was sort of politics, health, music and art stuff. I can't give you a list of what we did because I don't have any list, but that's my impression of what we did. We'd invite people into playing music live or we'd interview people on different topics. You know, we had a kind of people coming in talking about nutrition and food and health, as well as probably some of the political issues of the day. And you moved on from there to other programs? Uh, Yeah, I did a a number of different slots. For a long time later on, I did a a breakfast show, which get up early in the morning, drop by the Smith Street News Agency and pick up the newspapers. (laughs) This is pre-internet, so I'd pick up the newspapers and read them as quickly as possible and ring people up and get them out of bed to comment on, on issues. That was 
always interesting and we do a lot of preparation and have a few interviews edited already the night before from stuff we'd pre-recorded or from meetings we'd gone to earlier in the week. Uh, that was basically a, a um, political, uh, had a politi- more political focus than doing the morning show. On to Asia-Pacific currents? I helped to train the people who who did the program. started off with five groups with ranging across from Australia-Asia worker links who were focused on worker rights, especially in places like the Philippines, nuclear free and independent Pacific campaign, interested in the Pacific, uh, supporters of an independent East Timor. So my role there was really to to train those people. They wanted to do a pre-recorded program at that stage, so they had to learn how to use the, the studio equipment and how to interview people and, and edit the interviews. So that was quite exciting because it uh, was always a, a great, high-quality, interesting interesting program with uh, three or four interesting interviews and some, some news from around the region, and it's still going today. Open House was a very important program too on a Sunday morning, which meant for many years. Yes. Uh, at a certain point, 3CR got talkback, which was fantastic, and that just made everything, of course, so much easier because before that, if you interviewed people, you either had to do it beforehand with a tape recorder or you had to get them to come into the studio. The talkback system meant that, um, for example, on the breakfast show, as I said earlier, you could just ruthlessly ring people up at an early hour and find them in their homes with the aid of our phone lists, which were crucial. So then once talkback was in place, we, I kind of thought that it would be a great idea to have a, a discussion program with talkback. And so we had a Sunday spot, I think, for an hour, and we'd get a panel maybe of three guests to talk about a current issue and maybe talk from a, a bit more of an analytical point of view and have a bit of discussion and that would then also be open up to talk back comment. It was a good model and it worked and people were interested in it and I think that clearly we, sh- we um, paved the way for, for Q&A because <laughs> I think they were modelled on. I think CR set the model for a few programs. Yes, yes. Nostalgia Unlimited, The Garden Show. There were lots of programs. Someone pointed out to me recently that 3CR had one of the first of the sort of amusing, chatty football shows. The Diamond Valley Football League. Yeah, and there was another one. Was there? Yeah, no, there was another one that was... No, the Diamond Valley Football League was, was serious, but there was another one. There were lots of programs, of course, specialist music programs, dealing with a specialty that wasn't covered elsewhere and that was before the establishment of PBS, the music public radio station, which um, has a lot of people specialising in you know, early rock and roll or, or particular styles of music now, but that wasn't available then, so 3CR was provided an outlet for that as well. Also very important was the outside broadcasts and you were involved with a number of those in the early years. Right from the very start, people were doing outside broadcasts, either by recording concerts, but also by having direct live-to-air broadcasts. And, a techno- and the technology for that, to do a, a direct live broadcast from somewhere outside the studio, of course, was much more difficult and much more complicated so, and expensive. You had to somehow uh, 
book a telephone line that would go to somewhere near the venue that you were broadcasting from and then set up all your equipment at that point if you were going to broadcast a concert or a public meeting. If you were going to broadcast from a rally, there are no mobile phones to call back and report from. Once again, that's a technology that's made this stuff so much easier and more immediate and easier to do. But from rallies, as well as possibly having a live broadcast from the stage, people will be wandering around with tape recorder, portable tape recorders and either recording interviews and then running back or um, cycling back very quickly to 3 South Studios with the tapes, or else they would call in from a public phone box with a voice report, and that would be recorded by someone in 3CR. So lots of stuff, just really using the technology that was available. As You went out of state as well. You went to Tasmania. You went to South Australia. Yes. I personally went, and several other people went, the blockade of the... Um, Franklin blockade, which was stopping the damming of the Franklin Gordon Rivers in Tasmania. The technology in that was quite amusing because we did lots of interviews and did daily reports for over a period of several weeks from the blockade, going up and down the river to the blockade camp and also talking to the people in Strawn on back, which was the headquarters of the Wilderness Society, Tasmanian Wilderness Society, and talking to all the thousands or more people who had gathered there and the reports I did from there I was sending back um, interviews by editing them from between two cassette machines I think but then playing cassettes down a telephone line through a telephone line to someone at the other end of 3CR who would record them and the way I did that was totally illegal which involved unscrewing the microphone bit off the telephone and with alligator clips attaching that to a specially made cord which went into the tape recorder so the tape recorder could play down down the telephone. But I think the important stuff about that was that 3CR was there and was sending back reports. Similarly, I went, at my own expense I should add, in fact I think everything, everything everyone did was always at their own expense, to a conference in Vanuatu of the Nuclear Independent Pacific Movement. And I teamed up there with Jill Emerson, who'd come from our sister station to SCR in Sydney, and we uh, managed to get the cooperation of the local radio station to allow us to go in there at night when the, they weren't using their studios and edit our materials and actually, once again, send them through that radio station back to Australia. And so we interviewed all sorts of people who later became if they weren't already at the time, well-known Pacific Island leaders who were involved in the movements supporting independence for New Caledonia, for um, French Polynesia, West Papua and, and so on. But also I think another thing is that at the time there were various people from 3CR who were station workers who would go somewhere, go overseas and, you know, spend a while in Europe or in Latin America or wherever and record interviews and send them back to us. Bruce Taylor went to Nicaragua and he sent back cassettes of amazing interviews of people when there was in Nicaragua the left-wing government was being attacked by United States funded right-wing forces and some of those interviews were memorable and shocking you know to hear about what was happening there and there were big anti-nuclear demonstrations in the UK which were covered by another station worker who went 
there and did a whole series of interviews and sent cassettes back through the mail, which we edited and put to air. I think we've got to recognise that through those years we've had very talented people here at 3CR. Yes, I think, you know, there's a kind of mixture of talents. There's people who came in because they were actually interested in the, involved in the technology and would also do broadcasting, got into broadcasting through that avenue. There were people who came in because they were interested in the politics or just because someone had told them. But yeah, I think it's interesting that 3CR has provided a really important training ground also. I mean, everyone who worked there learned lots of different skills. Lots of people went on having worked for years, uh, you know, voluntarily or on tiny amounts of money at 3CR and went into significant positions in in the ABC or in other, other media. There's probably dozens of people in the ABC who got their first training in 3CR and also in other other media because a lot of those skills of interviewing and and writing and the art of writing succinctly, which you learn as a radio broadcaster, are really good skills to have wherever you work. And I myself, have, you know, like a lot of the paid jobs I've had have used those skills. Those skills have been crucial. And finally, Nancy, 2016, 40 years on. Yes. I've really had a great time working on a book which is going to be launched at the Bella Union Bar. The book has got lots of pictures and lots of stories which just show the kind of the richness of, of that history and give a bit of a taste of, of some of the thousands of really interesting people who've walked in and out those doors. And also, in the book, we probably mention a couple of hundred people but there are there are probably thousands whose stories are equally interesting and who we can't fit into those 300 pages and of course we shouldn't leave out the police either because over the years in a probably on a regular basis we had infiltrations here of the (laughs) Victoria police yeah I mean some of them apparently did quite useful useful work while they were around the place Maybe we provide a bit of education for those people who spend their time in 3CR. And that is Nancy Nancy Atkin, who's been involved with 3CR for, I think, just about the whole 40 years, talking about her early time at 3CR and, more recently, the book, which is being launched on the 7th of May at Bella Union in Trades Hall. Two minutes past five and you can be listening on 3CR on your computer, 3cr.org.au. Through that you can listen to this program for up to a week or you could have it podcast, 3cr.org.au. Hi there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St Kilda. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, ah, ah, Stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. And I'm speaking now with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And you're going to fill us in, Nick, with the connection between Fiji peacekeepers and Russia. Fijian army has been serving in UN peacekeeping forces for decades and decades. In fact, Fiji per capita 
is one of the highest providers of peacekeeping operations through the United Nations. And Fijian personnel have served right across the world in every peacekeeping operation, in the Balkans, in the Middle East, Bougainville and Solomons and beyond. Fijians served in Lebanon for many years in what was called UNIFIL, which was the United Nations interim force in Lebanon, uh, which is basically on the Israel-Lebanon border. From 1978 until 2002, Fijians were serving in the, the force in Lebanon. More recently in the Middle East, they've been serving in the Golan Heights, area captured by Israel from Syria, still an area of some contention, uh, particularly since uh, Russia's intervention in the Syrian war, where bombing operations have been uh, occurring closer to uh, the Israeli border, particularly against uh, Islamist groups such as the Al-Nusra Front, which is another Islamist movement separate from ISIS. And where does Russia come in? Well, the Russians have been talking with the Fijians, particularly since the 2006 coup, 2009 abrogation of Fiji's constitution, about providing uh, technical and military support to Fiji um, as a peacekeeping nation. Fiji's been really boosting its relations with a whole range of countries in recent times, and Russia's just one of them. Fiji established diplomatic relations with the then Soviet Union back in 1974, so they've had a diplomatic tie to the USSR for many years, but really it was a, a pretty much non-existent beyond the diplomacy at the UN. But more recently, since uh, Fiji was cast out of uh, the regional organisations like the Pacific Islands Forum, suspended from forum activities from the Commonwealth, it's been looking for new and powerful friends to provide everything from economic aid to military aid that previously had come from countries like Australia and New Zealand. 2010, Fiji's Japan-based ambassador Isikele Matatonga presented his credentials in Moscow, the first time a Fijian ambassador had been uh, in Moscow uh, uh, as a diplomat. January 2012, for the first time, the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov travelled to the South Pacific and came to uh, Fiji Uh, meeting with the Fijian government and indeed some other Pacific countries. The Russians, you know, looking for some diplomatic support in the UN around uh, issues like Ossetia and the Caucasus, but also, uh, you know, opening up to Fiji in a way that uh, had never happened before. And the culmination of all this was when uh, Prime Minister Bani Marama travelled to Moscow on the first ever state visit by a Fijian Prime Minister to Russia in uh, June 2013. And at that time, uh, Bani Marama signed five cooperation agreements with Russia, ranging from defence to investment and trade uh, and so on. What we've seen uh, this month, or in fact in January, is the arrival of 26 containers of armaments and equipment from Russia, which has uh, arrived on the wharf in Fiji and been taken off to Queen Elizabeth Barracks, uh, the, the military headquarters in Fiji, with the Russians providing equipment that TAS, the Russian news agency, says is to support Fiji in peacekeeping operations. Is this the first? There's a bit of secrecy about it. Um, the Fiji government has said that they'll reveal what's in the containers. Um, there's speculation that there's a lot of small arms, also uh, other equipment for uh, the peacekeeping troops who are deployed in Syria, even a helicopter, some trucks. No one's quite sure and there's uh, a lot of concern amongst uh, ordinary Fijians about what's going on there. I should say that this is not the only consignment of arms that's arrived in recent times. Uh, Korea, for example, just before Christmas, provided a whole lot of uh, tear gas guns and tear gas canisters, 
once again, uh, supposedly for use by prison authorities to deal with prisoners. But, um, you know, the, the militarisation of the Fijian police and uh, armed forces is of some concern to local uh, citizens. But uh, the Fiji government and the Russian government both say that these uh, um, supplies in the containers are simply for uh, peacekeeping operations to better equip Fijians. And the Fijians have been quite worried in 2014 a number of peacekeepers in uh, the Golan Heights, about 45 Fijians, were captured by the al-Nusra Front, which is this Islamist group aligned to ISIS but not part of ISIS uh, fighting against the Assad regime in uh, Syria. It took some a period of negotiation for the Fijian peacekeepers to be released by al-Nusra uh, as part of that. And so the Fijians obviously want to upgrade their capacity to uh, participate in these UN operations. And they're looking beyond traditional partners like Australia, New Zealand and the United States, to all and sundry. Well, what we've been seeing in recent years has been a, a real generational shift in Fijian foreign policy to um, what's dubbed the Look North policy, which is instead of looking to fellow members of the Pacific Islands Forum, Australia and New Zealand, looking to a whole range of countries in Asia, in the Middle East, uh, in the Americas, for what's called South-South cooperation, rather than relying on traditional donors, looking to so-called non-traditional donors. And that's for everything from investment to economic aid to these military and strategic uh, ties, military training and so on. And what we've seen has been that since the 2006 coup, and particularly since about 2009-10, Fiji's been expanding and upgrading its diplomatic relations with countries all around the world. And that's a diverse group. The obvious one is China, and uh, we could talk about China. It's a major player in the South Pacific, not just for Fiji, but for many other countries. But it's a very diverse bunch. The United Arab Emirates, for example, has uh, been very active and has provided funding for a Fijian institution called the Pacific Islands Development Forum, which has been created. So you have uh, UAE and other Middle East countries providing aid. Brazil, Korea, South Africa... Uh, mid-level countries that are members of the G77, the group of 77, which is in fact 132 countries now within the UN, uh, the developing world. And for Fiji, their foreign minister, Ratuinoki Kumbumbola, says quite openly this is about trying to leverage support from other developing countries rather than relying on the aid that comes from Australia, from the United States, with all the conditionalities, with all the ties attached to that, that we can do better deals that some of the policies around trade or around climate change and so on are more aligned with our partners than with our traditional allies. And that's been heightened, obviously, by climate change. Fiji's worked with countries like Brazil and others in the UN negotiations to uh, uh, campaign for much tougher policies at a time uh, that Australia has notoriously had very low ambition for its uh, reductions of greenhouse gases. It's been dragged kicking and screaming to provide any climate financing that's required by developing countries and so on. So what we've seen at a time that Fiji was suspended from forum activities up until the 2014 uh, elections in September 2014 for Fiji's national elections, Fiji's been looking to new non-traditional partners. And so what we've seen with the delivery of Russian arms is just part of a bigger picture and it's paid off for Fiji. Is this also connected with Fiji's position in the Pacific? Very much so. And, you know, what we're seeing is a reassertion of collective diplomacy in the Pacific where Pacific governments have come together to advocate on their own behalf for issues of concern. The main one of that is, of course, climate. 
we're Australia as you know a major coal exporter, particularly under the Abbott government, but going back to Rudd and Gillard and others, you know, who's historically been the enemy when it comes to the climate negotiations. It's not a matter about you know slightly different nuance. You know, Australia's whole coal export industry is a long-term strategic threat to the security of Pacific Island nations. And collectively, Pacific Islands have worked through the Alliance of Small Island States and other bodies to advocate their concern. But you see this pattern coming around trade, around issues of decolonisation, around issues of the oceans, uh, where New Zealand is playing a, a malign role on oceans and fisheries policy, and the Pacific governments are saying, hang on, we need to set our own agenda. So this is a, uh, happening in a, in a whole lot of areas. And Fiji is the second largest island nation after Papua New Guinea, has historically always played a very strong internationalist role. The old line about punching above your weight is true from Fiji, and this goes back to the earliest days of the 1970s, even under the Conservative government, led by the founding Prime Minister, Ratu Sakamasesimara, who was no radical in those days, but he was a major figure in third worldism during the 1970s and 80s, at a time that the colonies that made up the African, Caribbean, Pacific movement, the former colonies, started to assert their own interests around issues like trade, around the oceans, around the law of the sea, around nuclear issues, and so on. And from the earliest days, Fiji was a central figure in establishing a number of international networks. So Ratumara was a crucial player in setting up the ACP grouping, the African, Caribbean, Pacific grouping, which is today 79 countries that are former European colonies. Rotumara was one of the four founders of the Pacific Islands Forum, in those days called the South Pacific Forum, when in 1971, independent island leaders, and there were only four of them at the time, stepped out from the South Pacific Commission to say, we want to talk about independence, we want to talk about nuclear testing, we want to stop nuclear testing, and so on. So Fiji, as a big country by Pacific standards, has always played that international role in the region. It's also played a pretty crucial role on the international stage. Fijian negotiators were very crucial in advancing the case for the law of the sea. The International Convention, United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which established rights for the management, protection and exploitation of marine resources, drawing 200-mile exclusive economic zones. When that uh, treaty was being negotiated in the 1970s, Fijian diplomats were at the forefront. Indeed, the first head of the International Seabed Authority the international body that manages the law of the sea, was a Fijian, such in London. Fiji's always played that role through peacekeeping operations within the UN, through participation in UN bodies. But what we've seen is the, the strengthening of that since the post-coup period after Bainimarama took over. It's brought results. Fiji's ambassador to the UN is a guy called Peter Thompson, the Thompsons were an old colonial family, a former secretary of the governor of Fiji. Thompson has uh, served Fiji as UN ambassador for some years, and he's been a really crucial player, together with other countries that make up what's called the PASIDS grouping, the Pacific Small Island Developing States. It's a clumsy acronym, but it's the eight island countries represented at the UN um, have grouped together in a caucus. Historically, Australia and New Zealand have worked with island countries to advance their diplomatic agenda, but more and more the Pacific countries have said Australia shouldn't speak for us. On issues like climate change, Australia doesn't speak for us, that Australia's interests are counterposed to ours. And so you've seen the PASIDS grouping coming together 
to advance their cause. Handy number of votes in the UN out of 100, what, 192 countries. The PERSIDS grouping, the Pacific Small Island States grouping, has formally joined the Asia grouping, which has changed its name within the UN. You know, there's a Latin America group, there's an Africa group, there's the Western European and others group. That's us, the others, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Israel. PERSIDS group has joined formally with the Asia group, which is a large and dynamic group, obviously. And in UN speak, that's really important because it advances small island states onto committees, onto a whole range of bodies, ranging from you know, the board of UNICEF, uh, United Nations human rights bodies, uh, the UN development program, which is obviously crucial for Pacific countries. So we're seeing Pacific diplomats with Fiji at the forefront, Papua New Guinea particularly active as well, Vanuatu active, small island states like Tuvalu and Kiribati very concerned on climate policy. So you see Pacific governments speaking about their own concerns in their own voice through the Asia grouping. And this year it's likely that Peter Thompson, Fiji's UN ambassador, will become president of the UN General Assembly. Asia is putting up candidates and Fiji, uh, having backed uh, other countries last time in Asia, now have sort of put their name forward uh, as the Asia-Pacific candidate for the presidency. Thompson's already been vice president of the UN General Assembly and to be president would be an unprecedented step for a Pacific Island representative. So Fiji is stepping out on the international stage in a way that um, has roots going back to the days in the 1970s of campaigns around nuclear testing and the law of the sea and collective diplomacy by the Pacific Islands leaders. I should say that it's not just Fiji. and We've seen other countries stepping up to talk about issues, say, like decolonisation, Pacific countries pushing through a resolution through the UN General Assembly in support of French Polynesia and the reinscription of French Polynesia on the UN list of non-self-governing territories, an unprecedented success for Pacific countries, not backed by Australia, which has sided with France uh, when it comes to these questions of decolonisation. So Pacific governments on trade, on decolonisation, particularly on climate, are speaking with their own voice. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. It's Jan Bartlett and I'm joined by journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. With all these international developments with Fiji, how has it worked out for the people at the grassroots when you're thinking about the economy, human rights? Been a, a significant question in all these things about how much activity at regional and international levels translates to people's needs. Obviously, uh, the sort of diplomacy we've seen on the global stage around the climate talks, the Paris Agreement, the Pacific's been very working hard to an advance an agenda around, for example, climate financing, the need for developing countries to help fund the transition towards new energy systems to pay for the cost of adaptation. And Fiji has, uh, has been at the forefront of arguing for greater and easier access to climate financing. And that sort of funding and campaigning the international and regional level translates down on the ground on occasions. For example, the Green Climate Fund, which is a new international body established by the UN process to be a mechanism for funding, funding up to $100 billion a year of public and private financing by 2020. The first eight grants of um, the Green Climate Fund were issued in November last year. Uh, One of the eight went to Fiji. Fiji was the first Pacific Island country, the first small island state to receive funding through the Green Climate Fund. And it was um, 31 million US dollars for sewerage programs 
in uh, Fiji for a new pumping station on the Rewa River and to improve water and sanitation in Suva, particularly in peri-urban settlements around Suva with a growing urban population. So that's a very tangible example where Fiji's active diplomacy on the international stage has uh, seen a concrete step. Now, $31 million, on one level, it's huge money for grassroots people, but it's nothing compared to the needs so if you're living in a squatter settlement in, Su- in Suva, the fact that the government will now have some funds to improve sanitation and so on, that has some concrete outcomes. Having said that, you know, Fiji day by day continues with uh, enormous inequalities, like most Pacific countries, uh, indeed like Australia, between uh, the well-off and those people who are farmers, fishermen, people living in the squats uh, around urban centres like Suva. There are significant disparities in wealth and income in Fiji. And the economy's in transition. I mean, historically, Fiji has relied on major crops like sugar. And uh, Fiji sugar was sold to Tate and Lyle and other British companies particularly, but European Union, under subsidised prices under the treaty first known as Lome, signed in 1975, one of the great outcomes of uh, Ratumara's work back in the 70s. Uh, more recently, the Cotno Agreement. Um, under the Sugar Protocol, there's been subsidies as the World Trade Organization has tried to get rid of subsidies. Um, the EU has maintained sugar. But by 2017, those subsidies are being wound down. The sugar industry, which has been the backbone of Fiji's exports, is in transition. And it's got major implications for sugar towns like Latoka and Lambasa and others that have relied on sugar for the growing of the crop, for the milling, for the export of, of, of sugar. Fisheries is another key area. But tourism, even through the, the darkest days of the coup and the post-coup period, Fiji's tourism industry boomed on and uh, Fiji has a very high rate of tourism, about half a million people a year. There's um, a whole new market now with Chinese tourism. Um, historically, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Japan, to a certain extent, provided uh, uh, the bulk of tourists, uh, a lot coming from Europe. But now there's grown in the last 10 years from 30 million Chinese tourists a year to 100 million Chinese tourists a year. There's an awful lot of people who've got cash from the Chinese middle class. And so you see things like now uh, booklets um, available in Chinese um, um, in Fiji uh, for the Chinese tourists to have tourist guides. Uh, in March uh, last year, China and Fiji, following a, a, a summit with Xi Jinping, uh, who came in November 2014 to Fiji, China and Fiji instituted no visas for tourists. So Fijian tourists can travel to China without a visa and vice versa, and you're going to see an increase in tourism, uh, not just for Fiji, but for most Pacific Island countries, indeed like Australia, who are, uh, are trying to uh, breach that massive market. Are there still ethnic tensions between the Indo-Fijians and the Fijians? The main tensions are, are not purely ethnic. There's a lot of social tension still in Fiji because of the economic disparities. And we've seen in recent times real crackdowns by the Fijian authorities. One of the worrying features is that, and you see this criticism from human rights lawyers, from NGOs and others, is that countries like Australia and New Zealand have gone quiet on human rights violations by the so-called disciplined forces, by the police, the military, uh, prisons and and others. Got this situation where historically uh, police and prison officers have been notorious for so-called rough justice, where escaped prisoners, for example, have had the shit beaten out of them, where young people who are caught, say, with drugs have been beaten up by the cops and harassed and so on. And there's been a number of deaths in custody or uh, with people under detention that have not been properly treated by the courts and uh, with uh, 
uh, a ruling made on the rights and wrongs of the actions by police or by military personnel who've been involved in human rights violations over the last decade or more. Now, this is not just under the Bainimarama regime, uh, uh, post-coup. Um, when I lived in Fiji in the 1990s, there were a number of cases where prisoners were badly beaten, for example, after being recaptured, where uh, uh, young people complained about harassment and violent harassment by the police. And now these are stories you find in Australia as well, where there are particular violations of those who are less articulate, less able to defend their rights. And you see that same pattern in Fiji. Um, some human rights lawyers, like uh, one lawyer, Aman Ravindra Singh, who uh, defends many people accused of, uh, of crimes in Fiji at the moment, has been saying that this is worsening under the, the current government, despite the return to parliamentary rule in September 2014. The overwhelming uh, strength of the Fiji First Party under Bainimarama, which governs Fiji at the moment, people feel that there's still a culture of immunity for uh, police or military personnel who conduct human rights violations. So there's a lot of criticism on the ground about these sort of issues. A great concern for women in the Pacific, particularly Fiji? Well, it's true right across the Pacific. Incredibly high rates of violence within the home, within the workplace, within the community, and women and children bear the brunt of that violence. Fiji, however, has had a long tradition of campaigning by women about rights and particularly to end violence. Uh, The Fiji Women's Crisis Centre is uh, a long-standing institution that has been providing services for women and children who faced violence not just in uh, you know, practical services around refuges and counselling and so on, but also vibrant advocacy. And the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre has helped set up a regional network of women against violence, has campaigned publicly, and uh, leading figures like Shamima Ali and uh, Edwina Kotuisuva and others have worked not only in Fiji but in Papua New Guinea and other countries in the Pacific which have very high rates of violence. And this is a, a thing we see right across the region, including Australia, the very fact of Rosie Batty and, uh, and other public figures who are speaking out against violence against women. But there's a, a plague, an epidemic of violence in countries like Papua New Guinea where the vast majority of women have experienced violence in the home particularly and in the workplace. But I think it's important to acknowledge the work of women's groups like the Women's Crisis Centre and the Women's Networks that have raised this issue from the silence um, in which it's lingered for too long and are advocating a whole range of policies that government should be taking up particularly around information, around services, around counselling, around appropriate training for police, for medical staff to deal with survivors of violence. There's also some encouraging work of men being involved in Papua New Guinea. A lot of programs focus on men taking responsibility to end violence in the community and not to turn a blind eye when you know things are supposedly happening in the family. So you see some quite innovative programs happening but uh, in Fiji, but PNG and other countries particularly, you see a lot of violence and uh, it's a real challenge. One of the worrying features is that many people in the Pacific don't look to the police or the military for protection because in cases, as we've seen in Bougainville, in New Caledonia, in Fiji, uh, the so-called disciplined forces are the undisciplined ones that you see violence coming from um, the people who are supposed to be protecting society. That coup culture in Fiji is very much part of that. So there's this ambivalence in Fiji about the Fijian military where it's creating a culture of masculinity and and, uh, and the use of arms uh, and so on, which is raising questions amongst some grassroots Fijians about uh, the connection between the role of the military and uh, the way in which that brings that uh, militarised culture back into daily civilian life.
Finally, Nick, the move from the coups to parliamentary democracy, has it been a success so far? Well, at one level, it's a success in that there is a parliament. <laughs> there are parliamentary sittings. Um, uh, cabinet government has returned. Multinational observer group headed by Australia and Indonesia that monitored the 2014 elections put out a report saying that they were credible. I don't think that was quite free and fair, um, but certainly credible elections were held. And so we've seen um, attempts to woo Fiji back into regional organisations. At official and ministerial level, Fiji's been very active, um, so it's now participating, for example, in the free trade negotiations around the PESA Plus trade agreement, which is one of the big issues coming up this year. Prime Minister Bainimarama has said that he won't attend the annual Pacific Island Forum leaders' meeting. He didn't go to Port Moresby last last August um, for the the meeting in Papua New Guinea. Uh, this stage, I don't think he'll come to this year's forum. Um, he continues to argue that the forum needs reform and that the uh, uh, the role that Australia and New Zealand have played within the forum as the two largest members of the forum and also the key donors to forum secretariat and forum operations. Fiji's been calling for a change in Australia's role and I think that debate will continue this year. We're in a funny situation where uh, the Turnbull government has uh, made gestures towards improving engagement with the Pacific. Um, They've appointed for the first time a Minister for International Development and the Pacific to recognise both our international overseas aid program and our engagement with the islands region is important enough to be represented at ministerial level. That's significant. The bloke they've put in yet yet to get track record, he's been very active travelling the region. Stephen Chobo, who's a Queenslander of some conservative hue, uh, has been travelling to Fiji, Solomons and other places. Um, But it helps if you're Minister for International Development to have some aid to hand out. And one of the things we've seen has been under, uh, starting with the Gillard government, but particularly under the Abbott government, massive devastation to our overseas aid budget. It's dropped from 0.36 to 0.26 of gross national income. A billion dollars, a billion dollars was cut from the aid budget last year. That's 20% of the aid budget gone in one year. When that saw massive cuts, 70% cuts to programs across Africa, 40% cuts to programs across Southeast Asia. The one country in Southeast Asia that escaped that was Cambodia. Could it be because we were trying to send refugees from Nauru to Cambodia? Only a cynic might say so. But elsewhere, you know, 70% cuts in Africa, 40% cuts to aid programs in uh, Asia, shut down programs for women, shut down health and sanitation efforts, water supply efforts, agricultural programs, climate change response programs. It's a disaster. And Scott Morrison in December basically indicated that this year's budget coming up in May will continue the cuts first announced, $11.3 billion worth of cuts announced over four years by the Abbott government. As we're going into an election year, this government's looking for money for domestic programs. Our international obligations will be pretty low down. So it's going to be interesting to see whether Julie Bishop can halt or limit the further slashing of the aid budget. The Pacific got off relatively lightly compared to Africa last time, but there's not a lot of fat left in the budget. In Paris, Prime Minister Turnbull announced that Australia would give a billion dollars for climate action bilateral, at regional, at multilateral level, that we would fund things like new energy systems, adaptation and so on. Billion dollars, it makes a great headline. What's really striking is, though, that that billion dollars is smoke and mirrors. 200 million of that was already announced in December 2014. Here's Turnbull in 2015 standing up in Paris saying we're going to give a billion dollars. 
Julie Bishop had already announced a $200 million grant to the Green Climate Fund the year before, and on inspection you find that that $200 million is included in the new package. More than that, it's coming all from the aid budget. Pacific governments and other developing countries have long argued that the international climate financing that should come from OECD countries, from developed countries, should be new and additional that existing programs around health and education and poverty and water supply and violence against women and so on should continue funding and the extra impact that comes from the adverse effects of climate change needs extra resources. Instead, what we're seeing is that the Thermal government will take the billion dollars that it's promised for climate action from the aid budget, every penny, No extra funding from new and innovative taxes like a Tobin tax on financial speculation or maybe some taxes from multinational corporations who aren't paying their way or anything like that. No, it's all coming out of the aid budget. So the poorest people in the world are going to pay for the climate action that's needed to address the pollution and the adverse impacts of climate change that are coming from the biggest polluters in the world, including Sewers, the French multinational that runs the Hazelwood Power Station, and many other corporations that are creaming off money from the Direct Action Fund. At the same time as you know the aid cuts are happening, uh, the government in the mid-year economic financial outlook state- statement, Scott Morrison said they found $342 million for relocation and resettlement of refugees. The whole farce about offshore processing continues. So people in the Pacific can look at these priorities and see that Australia, at a time of slashing its aid budget, is also using smoke and mirrors to make pledges about climate action. The thing is, uh, our engagement, by coincidence, this year's Pacific Islands Forum will probably come smack dab in the middle of the election campaign. So Malcolm Turnbull probably won't go to the forum this year, another Prime Minister who ignores the key regional institution and the sort of trends we're talking about, the trends where Fiji and other Pacific countries will look to South-South cooperation rather than to Australia, that trend is going to continue. And many thanks to Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher, and he'll be back again in a month's time. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. Kathy Kelly, coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, is back home in Chicago after her most recent visit to Kabul, Afghanistan. She was there not long after the tragic bombing of the Medicine Sans Frontier Hospital in Afghanistan and spoke with one of the survivors. I asked her first to remind us what happened on that day, October 3rd, last year. In the Kunduz province in northern Afghanistan, a hospital which was built and maintained by Médecins Sans Frontières, a group of medical doctors who have stayed in war zones and been alongside people who otherwise wouldn't have medical care, had already sent in their coordinates to the United Nations, to NATO, to the United States military, to the Afghan military. <clears throat> By coordinates, I mean the exact geographic location of their hospital, because there was terrible fighting going on with the Taliban attacking Kunduz, and they wanted people to know, look, this is a hospital. But at 2.05 in the morning on October 3rd, suddenly the intensive care unit was 
hit by a blast. It was, uh, we believe it was a C-130 U.S. plane that had um, begun strafing the hospital, and so it caught on fire. Now, this hospital had grounds that were the size of a football field. That's an American comparison, but, but it was... These were large grounds, and the only building that was struck repeatedly was the hospital itself. The bombing, the strafing, went on from 2.05 in the morning until 3.15 in the morning, even though as it was being hit, survivors were trying to call frantically to NATO, to the United States government, saying, you're hitting a hospital. It was a horrific time for those who were survivors you know, they saw patients burn in their own beds, the intensive care unit. These were patients they themselves had treated earlier. They saw colleagues staggering out. Forty-two people ultimately were killed, 12 of whom were staff. Others were patients, and some were relatives visiting patients. This is a terrible scandal. It's the sort of thing that ought to be branded and acknowledged as a war crime, that the United States military refused to cooperate with an independent investigation. And Madame saint Frontier said, you know, we don't want an investigation from the U.S. military. They attributed it to human error. But there are so many questions residual. And, of course, some of those questions were being asked by the young man that we visited with in the hospital in Kabul. Can you tell his story? Well, he was a, a pharmacist, and... He had told his family, look, we're going to be housed at the airport, and then I'll just, you know, I've been called in to work extra hours because, you know, the hospital had, this hospital in Kunduz had treated 359 patients previous week. And uh, of those patients, well over 50 were children. So they were performing a really very, very necessary role. He had gone into work, but he was, in the basement sleeping on the shift when, you know, he would uh, get some rest and then go back to work. And he heard the explosion, and then he and another colleague went upstairs and realized the hospital was on fire. And they, as soon as they surveyed the scene, they realized that there was nothing they could do inside that particular building. So they ran to a building where there were security guards. And it's interesting, the security guards and they realized that if your cell phone has a, a battery and a SIM card in it, you can actually be targeted. So one of the first things they all did was remove the battery and the SIM card from their phones. And then um, they decided to try and make a run for it. Unfortunately for the young man we were talking to, he fed out heading for the gate, one foot outside the hospital compound, the other inside, and he was hit in the back by shrapnel, by flying debris, and it very badly injured his spine. And he managed to roll himself into a ditch, and he was bleeding profusely. He was terrified. The flames were um, still licking the walls of buildings. He described what he thought might have been some kind of laser flashes. He wanted to call his father because it's a custom to call your father and apologize for all of the wrongs you might have ever done in your life before you die. And he saw no way that he would survive. And so how could he make the call? He'd already removed the battery and the SIM card. And so he managed to fumble with one arm that wasn't injured 
and retrieve the phone and get the battery and the SIM card back into the phone. He was so desperate to call his family. And he reached his mother, and she kept asking, where are you? How are you, my son? And he was saying, Mom, put Dad on the phone, because he just had this major desire to have that custom with his father. And the father then um, told him, take your vest and put it under you to stop the bleeding. And then they managed to send relatives to go and look for him. He had lost consciousness, but he remembers the relatives finding him. And he said that at one point, they had no way to transport him. They took him to two hospitals that couldn't help him. They needed to somehow get him into a vehicle to make the much longer journey to the hospital in Kabul that the Italian doctors and nurses run, along with Afghans, called the Emergency Surgical Center for Victims of War. It's a hospital I greatly, greatly respect. But they didn't have a stretcher, so they were going to use a kind of heavy body bag. And he remembers that when he heard them calling for a body bag, he thought they thought he was dead. And he said, no, no, I'm alive, I'm alive. So those were some of his memories. And he was weak and he was frail when we saw him. He said he felt fortunate to be a survivor, that he'd gotten sort of a second life. But he remembers his colleagues and... When we saw him, he still didn't have control over his bladder, and he was in a great deal of pain, but um, he never recovered. He was able to walk with assistance. And what's happening about the inquiry into this atrocity? Well, Madame Saint-Fantier had looked to the United Nations ruling that says that if if another country initiates an investigation, then it can hold weight in terms of being able to decide whether or not a war crime has been committed. But the United States is not cooperating. And so it's not certain whether, I mean, the U.S. military might just hope this story more or less gets swept under the rug. I did notice that the BBC had a long magazine story about a surgeon who survived and whose story was a bit similar to the story I just told you. And they printed a very gruesome picture of a patient's body uh, charred and burned beyond recognition in the intensive care unit on a surgery table. I am kind of almost unbelieving when I recognize that there was also a Saudi hit, Samsung Frontier Hospital in Yemen, and then their hospital in Somalia was hit three months in a row. Hospitals that this group, Doctors Without Borders, runs have been hit. One thing we've been doing in the United States is going to hospitals with signs that say to bomb this place would be a war crime. Don't bomb hospitals in Afghanistan. Wanting to make that point that when you stoop so low as to bomb a hospital repeatedly, even after calls have been made saying stop this, then the uh, the vengeance and the irrationality simply has to be presented, I think, before the average public. I don't think people in average, ordinary neighborhoods where there are hospitals and health clinics will stand for this kind of thing. Is Medicine Sans Frontieres still in Afghanistan, or have they left? There are promises to rebuild the hospital in Kunduz, and some of the staff has gone back to do investigations. And if you don't mind, I think I should add that 12 days later, a United States military tank rolled into the front gate, crushing anything in its way and destroying evidence. Why that was ordered, we don't know. 
it'd be interesting to see how healthcare is managed in that huge stretch uh, in the Kunduz province and neighboring provinces in the north because there's nothing else there in terms of a, a reliable healthcare facility. And also be able to get the personnel to come and work in places like that with that fear that it could happen to them as well. Yeah, the humanitarian workers, both international and within Afghanistan, are so very, very courageous. The United States has, through something called USAID, USAID for International Development, has put quite a lot of money, millions and millions of dollars, into health clinics and smaller hospital facilities in Afghanistan. And a report came out from something called the Special Inspector General in Afghanistan Report. A man named John Sapko, S-O-P-K-O, coordinates those reports. And Sapko had written a letter to the head of the USAID saying, look, there's something we don't understand. In the 614 coordinates you gave us for health care facilities that you say USAID is funding, we found 189 instances in which when we try to find through Google imaging, more or less, through spatial earth imaging, the buildings that you say exist, we, there's nothing there. In fact, in half of those cases, there's nothing there for 400 yards. And so how can there be a healthcare facility when there's not even a building? And he noted that in six of the places that were mentioned, actually existed in Pakistan, and another set listed were in Tajikistan, and one of the coordinates was actually in the Mediterranean Sea that goes toward what you might call ghost hospitals. And uh, the National Public Radio, uh, about a year ago now, did a report on what they called ghost schools, places that are purported to be schools and that people check them out or try to do the Google Earth imaging, and there's nothing there should also mention there are ghost soldiers listed in the Afghan military ranks. So this is what we mean when we say there's tremendous corruption. Monies are taken from U.S. taxpayers, given to supposed military and humanitarian projects in Afghanistan, but there's no evidence of anybody being helped. In fact, it might be that it just contributes to the um, overwhelming and often very sinister levels of corruption in, in the country. A hospital in Gunduz, and that's turned into a ghost hospital and burned to the ground and turned to rubble. Is anyone trying to trace that, where those monies have gone? Well, I, I have to acknowledge it's very difficult physically to move around Afghanistan at this point. Roads are exceedingly dangerous. Uh, warlords stop cars, and if you aren't part of the tribal group, that might control a certain area, your life could be at risk. So I should acknowledge that. I, I think the Google Earth spatial imaging is certainly being used by the SIGAR report, and some very, very brave journalists have been making reports. These SIGAR reports are given to the United States Congress four times a year, and you would think that the members of the U.S. Congress would be asking questions, would be pursuing kind of a lament over the levels of corruption, and uh, we haven't seen that. And the media in the United States occasionally will raise some issues, but nothing commensurate to the squandering of resources. $104 billion has been spent in Afghanistan in non-military aid. Of that 
$3 billion of it was specifically designated for humanitarian aid. Well, that's not a very high sum, is it? And, you know, if you divide it up between 30 million people in Afghanistan, it really doesn't come to a very handsome sum. But anyway, the, when you look at what's going for non-military aid that isn't humanitarian aid, it's for things like overseeing corruption, when in fact the United States has contributed repeatedly to great corruption, narcotics reduction, well, Afghanistan is the largest supplier of heroin in the world today, and the number one supplier of marijuana. It just doesn't add up. However, in the world, could the $100 billion have been spent and Afghanistan's infrastructure, people get electricity every other day if they're lucky. In a lot of the provinces, there's no electricity at all if it's dependent on the government. People have been installing their own solar panels for electricity. Um, the health care is it's falling apart. And the education system is not preparing people for real jobs or certainly for advancing further in education. So I so admire the young people I know, Jan. They, in spite of living in a country that now has fallen to 173rd in the list of all the countries in the world in terms of uh, wealth, it's almost at rock bottom. They ask themselves, these young ones I know, how can we extend a hand and help people needier than we are? And so they've got a school for child laborers up and running now. And it's so impressive. The child laborers have such hard lives. They're out on the streets in the harsh weather um, trying to earn money so their families can just get bread and maybe some beans on occasion. So the Afghan peace volunteers bring them to a rented center and they tutor them and give them clean clothes and warm clothes and boots and teach them just some of the basics of hygiene and health care and then start to tutor them in their language and mathematics and get them ready to go to school. And then very generous people across the United States have contributed so that each family that sends a child to school will then be compensated with a monthly ration of beans and cooking oil and either flour or rice. And it's gone beautifully. There are 100 children in this school. Now, that's just a tiny drop in the ocean in terms of the numbers of children that are working as child laborers. But at least it's a, a model, I think, for something small and personal and so much more resistant to corruption. Kathy, who are the Afghan peace volunteers? Where do they come from? Well, uh, some of them initially came from Bamiyan province, a very remote rural province in the Hindu Kush mountains. And they came to Kabul in part because they were being threatened quite seriously by uh, local conservative clerics who said, you know, we've gotten wind that you're trying to live and work together inter-ethnically and we won't accept that. Others have come from Kabul, uh, girls and boys now, young women, young men, from all of the various tribes in terms of the people involved in the border-free school and also in the effort to create as they have done this winter, 3,000 duvets, heavy blankets, to be distributed free of charge to the poorest people. The Afghan Peace Volunteers are young people who sometimes themselves don't even have enough money for bus fare to get to the center and be part of activities. Um, the girls embroider these sky blue scarves and are paid a small amount, and then they save that up in order to be able to get transportation. They're people who 
are part of families who sometimes don't have enough food for their own family. But they will go up the mountainsides and into the poorest refugee camps and do surveys to figure out which families are the very neediest and then try to get those families organized in either the debate project, paying women to sew these heavy blankets and then giving them away free of charge or the border-free school. And then they also come together for different kinds of education projects and, and to welcome internationals. I was so edified my last trip to be joined by a veteran of the United States war in Iraq. And he was himself deeply troubled by Guantanamo and learned that the prisoners in Guantanamo were served tea in styrofoam cups every night and looking for an outlet for their own artistic expression, they would do floral designs using their fingernails for etching on the styrofoam teacups. And then the cups were collected every night and turned over to military intelligence, uh, which is a bit funny, like what's <laughs> are they gonna set these cups, you know, across the sea bobbing towards some other land formation and people will get messages out. But anyway, um, our friend Aaron Hughes decided to make a plaster cast of a styrofoam cup with floral designs on it, one for every one of, of the 779 prisoners in Guantanamo, and 220 were made for Afghan prisoners, and on the, on the base of every cup is written the prisoner's name. And then Aaron has a mobile tea-serving kit that he's designed, and he went to Afghanistan to serve tea in those cups and to start conversations with the young Afghan friends who lived with us for two weeks, to start conversations with them about their experiences of war. Tell me about some of the other people you've taken to Afghanistan and the skills that they've taken with them. Ron Van Norstrand is a lawyer who himself had bicycled across the United States to raise consciousness and awareness about the Afghan peace volunteers and concerns about Afghanistan. So he talked with the kids about bicycling and about possibly starting a bike project. And while he was there, yeah, a very brave young woman, Halima, has been part of a small women's bicycling team. And right now she's the only remaining member because others were told by their families this just isn't safe. But she persists, and so Ron has been staying in touch with the, the bicycling team, which includes quite a few males, and I think they're looking to find ways to connect with people interested in cycling and bicycle repairs in other parts of the world as well. And then he's also very interested in a new project to make micro-loans to each of five men who are day laborers. If they do get hired, they earn something close to $1 to $2 a day, but often they don't even get hired for that. Each of them dreams of having a cart that they could use, and from that cart they could sell vegetables and fruits. And one wants to have a cart that he could use to sell tea to other day laborers. Ron is interested, uh, along with another person in the United States, to help raise the $2,500 that would be necessary to get five laborers, five carts. So it's, it's a small program. It would be a, a micro-loan. Um, but I think it's a kind of um, vision 
that we need in the Afghan Peace Volunteers keep imagining, okay, what would alleviate some of the poverty, some of the suffering, some of the hunger in immediate community. Is the main focus for the school and the volunteers young men because young women are prevented by their families maybe from participating or are women now getting out and saying, I want to do more for my life? Oh, that's such a sensitive question. The school wouldn't exist if it weren't for the young women. They wrote their own textbook, and it's a good one, to cover the different courses that are taught. They teach the courses. They join with some of the young men in doing surveys to determine who will come to the school. They've been essential. If you go to the website for the Afghan Peace Volunteers, you won't see these wonderful young women because... If their parents were to see them in a photograph on a website, they would be so frightened for the future of the young woman. So it's not an easy place, even in Kabul, for a young woman to act in accord with her deepest beliefs because the patriarchy and the the exclusion is still very, very strong. You still see uh, many families that insist that when women go outside, they must wear the burqa. The young women that come to the border free center usually... For their safety, have to call their parents as soon as they arrive and call their parents when they leave because people are afraid about what could happen to a young woman on the streets. It's still the case that a a young woman and a young man aren't to be together in a room without others there and they're not to text and they're not to exchange any kind of greetings beyond, you know, just a hello, how are you? Well, of course, young people are going to have much more interesting relationships than that. And so I do see some change, and I think it's for the better. I think it's good that there's, that there's a healthy place where young men and women can come together and talk with each other about issues and events that affect their lives. And my toward, toward the end of my stay, uh, they hosted an event where about 134 young people came together, sat on chairs outside, even though it was a bit chilly, and some of the young men did the national dance, which is the Ikan, and they were Hazara and Pashto and Tajik dancing together. Young women read poetry. A young woman was the MC. They had uh, musical events. They had several very good talks, and they, they explained all the projects going on at the center, and they just wanted to welcome people to be part of these projects. And is the danger real for young women out in the streets still today? Oh, yes, yes. There was a a horrific event in which 2,000 people congregated on a bridge and killed a young woman named Fargunda. She had been at a small mosque and had seen that somebody at the mosque was kind of... It was a bit like a moneymaker. He would take from very poor people... Uh, small amounts of money and give them little pieces of paper that he said would be of healing help to them. And she criticized him and said, you know, why are you tricking poor people? And he accused her of abusing the Quran, of having desecrated a Quran. And people gathered in a rage and began to throw stones at her, and they eventually killed her. And young women do not feel particularly safe on the streets. Kabul has been designated the most dangerous city in the world, so 
it's not as though it's just young women. People are afraid they might walk past a place where there will be an explosion or be on public transportation. Just seven journalists were just killed as they were traveling in a, a van. Who They worked for the Tolo TV News. And that was just maybe uh, 10 days ago. So it's a very dangerous city in which to live. But on a happier note, you must have seen the children grow. You've been going backwards and forwards for a number of years now. Imagine the children you saw oh, first. Certainly, uh, you know, I just walked in the door of our apartment here at Voices, and, and a young woman who's doing intern work with us was watching a video of Zekrola when he was maybe, oh, I think nine years old. And, of course, now I know him, and he's 19, and he's turned into such a wonderful young man. But to see him on that screen and remember him as a child was really very wonderful. And thanks to Cathy Kelly, and I'm out of here. I'll be back again next week at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.